This morning, we're going to be looking at a very famous passage in the uh, Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to it. It's Luke 10, uh, verses 25 to 37. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries. I'll be projecting it up on the screen later. So Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. Who is that guy with the funky shades? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Over the last few weeks, we've been exploring community, what community means, haven't we? What does the Bible say about community? What was Jesus' understanding about the community of God's people, the church, us? Um, We've unpacked lots of things, haven't we? Uh, God's community is complex, it's rich, it's diverse, isn't it? We've tried to, week on week, paint big pictures if you like, a worshipping community, a healing community, a generous community. We've done various um, aspects of the community of God. And so this morning I want to move on to uh, another pretty mind-blowing, really exceptionally challenging, certainly when I read the parable of the Good Samaritan and really studied it, I was exceptionally challenged. Um, um, another uh, challenging uh, aspect to community, and that is mission. The church, Jubilee, is on a mission. Jesus said, um, therefore, go, go, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, Jesus tells us, I am with you to the end of the age. That's encouraging. But that also sounds like a pretty big mission to me. And really what I want to unpack this morning is the question that came out of some of the prophetic this morning. Uh, Are we fit for purpose? Do we really understand the radical, radical nature of God's mission, God's call to mission on our lives? James says, uh, James 2.17 tells us, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Strong words. And I think the parable of the Good Samaritan really challenges us, gets under our skin, if you like, uh, about this very fact. So we're going to be doing a parable this morning. So remember what I said about parables? Parables are small stories getting across big ideas. Yeah, they're cunning. They're like ninjas, remember? Um, They sneak up on you out of nowhere as you get drawn into the story closer uh, deeper, suddenly out of, the, out of nowhere, you suddenly realize it's Jesus speaking to you, changing you, challenging you, provoking you. Ninja moment. Trust me, Jesus is going to ninja you this morning. But don't worry, Jesus is a loving ninja. I'm not sure if I can say that. But you know what I mean. Let's get on to the Word of God and not the Word of Raj. (laughs) Shall we read? Now, if you can put your magnifying glasses on, that'll be helpful. (laughs) On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? "What What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The teacher of the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor 
as yourself. Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the teacher of the law, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on by the other, on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray, shall we? Yeah, Lord, I thank you for these stories. I thank you for this story. I thank you for this story that really gets at our very heart. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are not a cardboard cutout God. You're a God who challenges us, provokes us, changes us more and more into who you want us to be. And I pray, Lord God, that this morning is no different. I pray, Lord God, that the truth of God pierces us this morning. I pray, Lord God, that the truth of God really impacts us in a serious way so that it's not just an inward thing, although that is so important, but I pray, Lord God, that that inner hearts change so that our actions, thoughts, and deeds change too. I pray, Holy Spirit, be with me, be with us, be with us all as we, pre- as we uh, hear your word this morning. Thank you, Lord. So this morning, I want to unpack what gospel neighboring is all about. If we want to get uh, mission right, we need to understand from the very bottom of our heart, I think, what this neighboring business, as Jesus defines it, means for us. You see, everyone is on a mission, but not all missions are the same. If we want to get mission right, we need to understand, really, what Jesus is saying in this parable. And so, three points this morning about gospel neighboring. What does gospel neighboring look like according to Jesus. So three points. Gospel neighboring is not optional. Secondly, gospel neighboring is limitless. And thirdly, gospel neighboring is of grace. It's not optional, it's limitless, and it's of grace. So first point, it's not optional. This conversation, this chat, if you like, with Jesus Um, starts with Jesus and a teacher of the law, a religious clever bod, somebody who knew the Jewish scriptures back to front. Uh, And this discussion comes from the fact that this religious scholar has noticed something very different about this Jesus. You see, this Jesus is shaking up the town. He's hanging out with sinners like no one did. He's staying in the homes of people 
who would normally be despised by the Jewish important people. He's healing those people who would be generally regarded as unworthy of any compassion and pity at all. He's shocking the religious elite of his time. The religious scholars, in fact, see this man Jesus as a threat, a man who is breaking all the rules, a man who doesn't take the religious law of God seriously. That's his problem. And so he tries to trap him. The the religious scholar tries to trap Jesus with this question. And he asks, what do you think I must do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? How can I be saved by God? What do I need to do, Jesus, for God to accept me? And the trap is this. He He thinks Jesus will undermine everything that the Jewish culture of the day aspired to were guided by the Torah, the Scripture, the law of God. He was expecting Jesus to answer that question by poo-pooing it all. To say something like, you know what? It doesn't really matter how you live. Ignore all that stuff in the Holy Scriptures. God accepts everyone. God has low expectations of you. God is easygoing. Chill out. This religious scholar is trying to expose Jesus as a phony teacher. And a a religious rebel. That's the trap. But Jesus' response here is phenomenal. Because in return, Jesus ends up trapping the religious scholar, doesn't he? The difference? Jesus' trap is a trap of love. So let's let's look at it, shall we? How does Jesus answer the religious lawyer's question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does he do? He asks another question. He says, well, look here, smarty pants. You know the law back to front. You know every detail of it, don't you? Tell me what's in the law. How do you read it? What's he asking? I'll tell you what he's not asking. He's not asking for the religious guy to summarize all six to seven hundred religious rules that the Torah lists to be right with God. They'd be there all week. He's asking for a summary of it. He's asking this religious lawyer to tell him, give him a summary of the law of God. Succinct, a summary, a short pressy of it. And Jesus gets the summary, what he's expecting. And if you knew your Torah like this religious guy did, you would have said the same thing. You would have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. That is a good summary of the Jewish law. But what does it mean? Superficially, it actually sounds quite straightforward, doesn't it? Oh, I can do that. Easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's it saying? Well, the first part is saying this. Love God, hear this, love God with a passion that outstrips any of your other passions. That's what it's saying. Let God be the center of all your thoughts, actions, decisions, concerns, expectations, all the time, every time. Uh, The Archbishop William Temple uh, once said, your religion... Your religion is what you do with your solitude. What what does he mean? 
He means that when you're on your own for hours, that's what solitude means, when you're on your own for hours, and you have nothing to read or listen to, nothing to look at, when your mind isn't forced to think of anything else, where does it naturally go? Where does it love to dwell? Is it God? Are you always thinking how great he is, how glorious he is, how wonderful he is, his beauty, his majesty? Is that where your mind automatically goes whenever it's free to wander? Or do you, di- or do you get distracted all the time? Does God just get fitted in amongst all the other stuff that goes on in, 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 in your life, my life? Work pressures, relationship issues, our kids, your money, your worries, your fears, what people think about you. Does God really take center stage, center stage in all of those things? And so that's the first test of your heart according to the Jewish law, is do you love God so much that he dominates your solitude? Do you love God so much that you're always content with any of the circumstances that you find you in, find yourself in, because deep down, you know that you have what you want most. Is that you? Have you passed the test, Dick? Well, that's just the first rule. There's another one. It's this, love your neighbor as yourself. What's that all about? Well, easy, really. It means meet the needs of your neighbor with all the force, all the joy, all the speed, and all the power that you meet your own needs. Be as happy for other people when their needs are met as you would be when your needs are met. When they get a job, when they do, um, when they do really well, when they find the man of the, or woman of their dreams, when they get a promotion, when they get asylum status or refugee status, um, Uh, Be happy with them, celebrate with them, with all the zeal and joy as if it were happening to you. When you reach out to someone in need, do it with all the energy and enthusiasm as if you were the one in need. That's what it means. (laughs) Two rules to get right with God. Two rules to live the perfect life. Love God and love each other perfectly, spotlessly, without a hint of dwindling or jealousy or lack of vigor. That's all it takes. How do you think the religious lawyer's feeling now? More to the point, how are you, how are we feeling now? Do you get what's happening here in this conversation? Do you feel the force of what Jesus is saying? You see, this fellow was pretty, um, pretty much top of the pops, feeling pretty much top of the pops about himself, really, before he met Jesus. He thought he was doing okay, but Jesus says, when you look beneath the law, when you look deeper at the law of God, what it's after, the character changes, the heart changes, do you realize how inadequate you are before God? That's what the law does. It shows you how to live. But do you know what? It doesn't give you life. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. And do you know what? The religious lawyer is feeling the weight, the challenge of what Jesus is trying to show him. How do we know that? It says it in verse 29, doesn't it? But he wanted, the religious scholar, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, Jesus, 
Who's my neighbor then? And this question is the crux, the center point of this parable, if you like. The religious scholar is now sensing the trap. The law, if you like, is doing in him exactly what it's meant to do. It's convicting him. It's making him feel uncomfortable. It's underlining all his imperfections. The law of God is challenging his very identity. So he does what any decent person would do in that situation. Fight back. Well, who's my neighbor then? Surely you don't mean anyone, Jesus. Even worse, surely you don't mean everyone. Tell me, Jesus, what's the minimum standard? Come on, Jesus, make it doable for me so that I can continue to work hard enough to be accepted by God so that I can keep the rules and my face in front of everyone else so that I can earn my ticket to heaven. Lower the bar, Jesus. You're being unreasonable now. And Jesus says, do you know what? That reminds me of a story. Sounds like Max Bygrave. Didn't he used to say that? And do you know what? That rem- I want to tell you a story. Yeah, yeah. And that reminds me of a story. And the story, and in the story we have this hero, the Samaritan, who's on, the, on his way to Jericho. And on his way he sees a man who's been assaulted, almost left for dead in the road. Now, for those of you who don't know about Samaritans and Jews, you know what? They hated each other. This man in the road would have been the hero's ultimate enemy. Culturally different, racially different, religiously different, visually different, yet quite remarkably, against all the odds, against all the logic and reasoning, this Samaritan stops, he thinks, and despite all the barriers that he has to get over, he gets off his donkey and he meets this man's basic desperate needs in every way, emotionally, physically, financially, medically, transportationally. I don't think that's a real word. Everything. He holds nothing back. It's incredibly sacrificial. It's incredibly dangerous. But he does it, unlike the other two who just pass by. And this story is Jesus' answer to the lawyer's initial question. What's the minimum standard? What's the least I must do to help others? What are you expecting me? Who are you expecting me to call neighbor? My neighbor, Jesus. And you know what? With this story, with this story, Jesus torpedoes the man with truth. He says, there is no line. There is no cutoff. Who is your neighbor? Think of your worst nightmare. He is. Jesus says, gospel neighboring like this is not an option. It's essential. That's the challenge of God's mission to us, if you like. That's what God is calling us to move to day by day. Jesus says, I want you to look out there at people who you'd ordinary, or who you'd normally despise, who would normally, you wouldn't normally hang out with, the ones who'd get up your nose, the ones who'd offend you, and I want you to meet their needs with such concreteness, such sacrificial love, such vigor, such energy, that, that, when, that as they receive your heartfelt compassion, they'll be astonished, they'll be bowled over, and they'll want to know, what is it about you that makes you go to such lengths? 
That's what gospel neighboring is. And Jesus says, this is not take it or leave it stuff. It's a command. So God is calling us to be a community of gospel neighbors. Who's your neighbor? Anyone in need. No limits, no excuses, no getting out of this one. Not optional, essential. How are you doing? Second point. Jesus, in this story, shows us the magnitude of gospel neighboring. And you know what? It's big. It's huge. It's actually limitless. You see, as we've already said, the religious lawyer was looking for excuses. We do that all the time, don't you? Don't we? I do. And this story underlines three ways in which we try and limit his call on our lives, in the church's life. And to all three, Jesus says, no. No way. So what are those three limits? I'll tell you quickly. Firstly, we limit the who. We limit the who. You know what? It's natural to want to give and help and get involved with people who are like you, who you like, who like you. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. You know what they've gone through. You know how they think. You relate to them. That's good. Help them. But what about the other people? God has really been challenging us as a family about this recently. Who do we open our home to? Who do we naturally hang out? Who do we give our time and money to? God has been lovingly pointing out, if you like, our prejudices. God has been putting us in close contact with people who we don't normally hang out with, both in and out of church. God has been challenging us with people's behavior that we don't necessarily find comfortable or likable. He does that, have you noticed? I've, really, I've recently started working in a, a general practice. I'm a GP, for those of you who don't visitors here. I've I've recently started working in a general practice where all the people in the practice are heroin addicts, criminals, prostitutes, and often thugs. Good job, eh? And, And the question I keep asking myself is this. If my life was like theirs, if I had their parents, if I had their circumstances, if my friends were all like theirs, would I really be any different? You see, it's easy to get all high and mighty, um, thinking, oh, you know what, that's terrible. I can't believe that they behave like that. They deserve everything coming to them. But would you really be that different if you had their lives, their generations of lives, if you like? I think it would take a proud person to say no. Jubilee, when I walk in there every week, the tragedy of life without God hits me straight in the face. When Jesus puts a Jew and a Samaritan together and the Samaritan does everything for the Jew, Jesus' point is this. Don't you dare limit the who. Your neighbor is anybody in need. Absolutely anyone. So we try and limit the who and Jesus says, no. Secondly, we try and limit the when. We say things like, I don't mind helping them when they deserve it when they've become more responsible, when they, when they get their life back on track, then I'll help them. 
You know what? Their house got flooded. They've got cancer. Um, they, they, they were burgled the other night. It wasn't their fault. They deserve my help. But those other people over there, no way. They don't deserve help. They're irresponsible, stupid, irrational, foolish, reckless. They're always in trouble. It's their fault. Tough to them. But once again in this story, Jesus says no. As we've already said, the Samaritan would have thought all those thoughts about the Jew. But in Jesus' story, the Samaritan reaches out. He reaches down. Jonathan Edwards, I don't know if anybody's ever read any of Jonathan Edwards. He's a, he was a pastor in New England in the 1740s, that kind of time. Uh, he was a Bible teacher, and he wrote a fascinating piece of work called The Duty of Charity to the Poor. Uh, and he wrote it in response to all the excuses that his congregation were giving him as to why they didn't want to help the poor or they want to give to the poor. Uh, and Jonathan Edwards made a list of all these excuses and then he tried to answer them in this essay. So here's one excuse. But you say they are not truly poor. I only have to help people who are really destitute and poor. That's what his congregation is saying. And Edward's answer is this. We should relieve our neighbors only in extreme destitution. That's not agreeable to the rule as loving your neighbor as yourself. We get concerned about our situation far longer before we get destitute, before we become destitute. So you should love your neighbor as yourself. Good answer, eh? Here's the second excuse. But they brought, it, brought on their trouble themselves. I don't have to help them when they've brought their situation on themselves. And Edwards replies, but Christ loved you, pitied you, and greatly laid himself out for you to relieve you from all the want and misery which you brought on yourself. By your own folly, should we not love others as Christ loved us? Jesus says, don't you dare limit the who. Don't you dare limit the when. And thirdly, Jesus says, don't you dare limit the how much. Once again, we do that all the time, don't we? If I had enough for myself to get by, well, maybe then I'll give more away. But get real, Jesus. I can't make ends meet myself. Never mind the others. I can't afford to help people like that. To, to the degree you are saying, I can't afford to do it. And once again, Jesus says, I want your heart. Look at the parable. The Samaritan risked everything for this Jewish man. Jesus deliberately sets the story on a stretch of road, which everyone knows. He didn't say, you know, there was, uh, he didn't say, on the road, the robbers got this man. No, he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You see, everyone knew this road. This stretch of road was deadly. Lots of caves, lots of hills. In fact, there's a pass on this uh, road, literally called the Pass of Blood, the Ascent of Blood. And many people would have got beaten, robbed, and killed on this route. And along comes a priest and a Levite, and they passed by on the other side. When we read that, it shocks us, doesn't it? It shocks us. Why did they pass by? That's dreadful. They should have known better. I would never have done that. Snoot, snoot, high and mighty. Rubbish. 
you probably would have done exactly the same thing. I almost certainly would. Why did they pass on by? Because they were smart. You know, how come? Because if you saw someone on the pass of blood who wasn't dead yet, it meant something. It meant that the robbers were probably still nearby. There was a high likelihood that these violent criminals were just round the corner, looking on. And you know what? They'd be after you next. Stopping and helping this Jewish man might quite easily have been fatal for the Samaritan, the Levite, and the priest. So the Levite and the priest, they move on. They weren't uncaring, horrible people, as we sometimes read into this. They moved on because they did what any sane, logical person would have done. But this Samaritan is exceptional. The Samaritan doesn't limit the how much. No, he risks everything. He gives everything. Jonathan Edwards again says this. It's a little bit wordy, so I'll put it on the screen, but I'll explain it. He says this, remember Galatians 6.2, when it says, bear one another's burdens. We may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. Else how is that rule, bear one another's burdens, fulfilled? If we are never obliged to relieve other burdens, except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do you bear your burdens when you only do it by bearing no burden at all. Do you see what he's saying? It's terribly challenging. He's saying that when you and I say, I can't, we can't afford to give, what we mean is that we can't afford to give to the poor or the needy, our time, our money, our efforts, anything. Um, We can't afford um, to give without it burdening me, without it hurting my living standards without it making me radically sacrifice. And Jesus says, yes, that's exactly it. There is no such thing as a person in the kingdom of God who can afford to help. In fact, if you can afford to help, Jesus says you're not helping enough. Ouch. Ninja. Very challenging stuff, isn't it? If you really get into it. Jesus Christ is calling you to help is calling you to help those who you would normally hate the sight of. Jesus Christ is calling you to help even people who have brought on their situation themselves. Jesus Christ is calling you to help people to such an extent that some of their burden falls on you so that you feel some of their difficulty because you are giving that heavily. That is the radical nature of gospel neighboring. Jesus says, don't, dare, don't you dare limit the who. Don't limit the when or the how much. I'll ask you again, how are you doing? Guilty, maybe? Condemned a little? That's why we preach this stuff. We love doing it. No, <laughs> not really. How on earth do you get anybody to live like this? It sounds great, doesn't it? But not many of us are good examples, are we? So how do we move from where we are to being radical, sacrificial givers? How do we move to radical gospel neighboring like this? How do you get there? 
And that's the final point. The answer, it's all to do with your motivation. What is it that is motivating you? And basically, there are two answers to that question. First, the first one isn't very helpful long-term. The second one, the second one is soul-transforming. So first motivation, it's guilt. You see, if you're feeling guilty or ashamed, if you're feeling pressured to give more by everything said so far, you have so much, they have so little, don't you feel bad? Give it away, help them, appease your guilt. If you feel that way, it tells you, it tells me a lot about our heart. And the problem is this, we can read stuff like this in the Bible and make them into a list of things I must do, things I should do to get right with God, to be accepted. It's often subconscious, it's often hidden, but it's there deep down. God's watching, others are watching. What will everyone think? Obligation, a list of do-its. In fact, most religions are like that, aren't they? A list of rules and regulations, do this, do that, and God will accept you. You must give to the poor because Jesus said so, because Muhammad said so, because Buddha said so, because Ram Krishna said so. Whoever told you, to, whoever told you, um, the Bible says so, the Quran says so, another holy scripture says so. That's what God's rules say. Most religious codes would actually encourage us to help the poor. Our secular world those people without God or don't believe in God say the same thing too. It's a list of do's and don'ts and, and do these, do these, do these things, don't do these things and you'll be thought of as a good person. You'll be accepted. You'll feel good about yourself. People will feel good about you. The morality card. But deep down, you know what? Secular or religious, the thing that is driving you is guilt. It really is. The pressure of following rules, the do-its, keeping up, obligation. It's guilt. And Jesus says, no. Why? Because when you're motivated by guilt, it doesn't change your heart. In fact, it poisons your heart. You look for the bare minimum to get through, just like this fellow did in the, in the, uh, that Jesus is talking to. On the one hand, when you fail to keep up, because eventually you will fail to keep up, it condemns you. You feel bad about yourself. But on the other hand, if you do manage to keep it up for a while, you start looking at others negatively. You, get, you, get, um, you, get, you feel superior. They're not doing very well, are they? If I can do it, why can't they do it? You can't win. Guilt doesn't change your heart. A list of do-its is not soul-transforming. If you're feeling guilty about not giving enough money or your time or your life to Jesus' call, his mission, then Jesus says, stop it. Stop right there. I don't want guilt to be your motivation. So where do you get the power to live like this man? Where do you get the dynamic to live like this? Where does it come from? Answer, the gospel. That's why it's called gospel neighboring. The gospel isn't a list of do-its. No way. The gospel is actually a done-it. It's history. It's happened. The gospel doesn't motivate us through guilt at all. It motivates us through grace. And the gospel of grace, when you understand it, when it hits you, when it opens your heart, is soul-transforming. 
to end, let me explain. Jesus puts into the parable, very unnecessarily, unless you understand his point, two people who are extremely moral, extremely religious, a priest and a Levite. He could have chose other people to make his point, a Pharisee maybe, another upstanding member of the community, but he doesn't. He chooses a priest and a Levite. Why? I'll tell you why. The priest and the Levites were the very people in society who gave alms to the poor. They, they gave to the poor. They were the ones who others would have looked to as the benchmark for generosity and giving to the needy and vulnerable. And so what Jesus is trying to show us in this story is that people, that the pe- that people like them who give out of duty, who give out of morality, when it comes to the crunch, when it comes to the radical costliness that is required in this situation, when it comes to life-risking choices, when they have to lay themselves out in the way Jesus Christ has asked them to, they can't do it. They pass on by to the other side. They walk over the road. Jesus is saying, quite astoundingly, ripping through the cultural thinking of his day and our day by saying, morality, a list of do-its, obligation, religion, won't ever take you far. It can make you a little bit generous. It can make you feel bad about yourself enough to do something, but it doesn't change the very core of who you are. It doesn't create in you a life made for radical service, generosity, mission. It doesn't work long-term. So what motivates us to sacrificial mission if it isn't guilt? And the answer in this parable is where Jesus puts the scholar, the religious lawyer in this parable. The true heart-changing moment, the ninja moment, if you like, comes when the religious scholar realizes who the man in the road is. If Jesus had said the story like this, a man just like you, was riding along the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, a man just like you, a Jewish man. And in the road, he saw a Samaritan. And the Samaritan had been robbed and beaten and almost left for dead. But the man on the donkey, just like you, got off and helped and nursed the dreaded Samaritan, the loser, the blasphemer, the the oppressor. Despite all the barriers, the man just like you got off his donkey and nursed him, paid money out for him, cared for him, helped him in every way. Now you go and do likewise. How do you think the teacher of the law would have responded? He might have thought, well done. Well done, man on the donkey. Man just like me. Oh, what a moral guy. You know what? I might have done that, even though the man in the street didn't deserve anything. After all, I'm better than him. And besides, seeing him there bruised and battered might have made me feel a little bit guilty. So maybe I would have helped. I didn't have to. I didn't know him anything. That's what I might have done, though. Yeah. More likely, though, knowing the racial and religious tensions of the time, he would have just laughed at Jesus if Jesus, as Jesus said this, if Jesus said that. He would have said, are you kidding? I'm not a traitor of my people. That's the wildest, weirdest story that I've ever heard. No self-respecting Israelite would ever do something like that. With stories like that, Jesus, you don't inspire me. Shut up. That would have been more like the response if Jesus had put the Samaritan in the road. But you see, Jesus didn't do that. 
Who does Jesus put in the road? Not the Samaritan. He puts the Jewish man there. He puts the Israelite there. He says, a man just like you was in the road. What if your life was ebbing out? What if it was you who was bleeding to death? And what if your only hope was an act of free grace to you from an enemy who doesn't owe you any mercy, doesn't owe you any favors, in fact, owes you the exact opposite? Would you accept his free grace? That's what changes the heart. That's what gets rid of moralism. That's what stops you looking down on others, others who are not just like you. That's what, the gos- that's what gospel neighboring is, and it's all to do with what's motivating you, guilt or the grace of God. Do you believe Jesus is saying we will never be radical neighbors until we have been, until we have seen and been radically neighbored ourselves? We will never be able to have the kind of ministry and mission that God is calling us to until we have truly received and continually cherish the grace that has been given to us in Jesus. That's how you get there. That is the only way. By the end of this parable, Jesus, have you noticed, has changed the question right around. He changes it from who is your neighbor to who was neighbor to you. Gospel neighboring, radical mission, involves the realization that Jesus was neighbor to you. Jesus paid the price that you deserved for all your sin, my sin, for all your self-centeredness, for all your dishonoring, disobeying, disregarding behavior towards him. And in your desperate situation, lying in the road, Jesus Christ came to you. He had compassion for you. Despite all the barriers that you put up between yourself and him, you know what? He took pity on you. He bandaged your wounds. He put you on his saddle and he carried you home. That's the gospel. Radical, radical grace. Radical costliness. Radical sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5.21, the message version says, In Christ... God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When you see him as your good Samaritan, when you see him as your radical neighbor, it will melt your heart. Pleasing him will then become the joy of your soul. Not out of guilt anymore, but out of praise and thankfulness. How can you feel superior to others anymore when you realize that your performance had nothing to do with this newfound joy and relationship with God? How can you feel guilty anymore when you know without a doubt that God accepts you, longs for you, loves you just the way you are? How can you be sure of all of that? Look at the cross. That's where you'll find the proof. Colossians 2, when you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant cancelled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham 
authority at the cross and march them naked through the streets. We have a Jesus who's won the victory in our lives. Jubilee is the gospel still working in you. Jubilee, our God-given purpose is to go out with the gospel of Jesus, letting it change lives and transform society through what we say and what we do. Jesus has lifted the bar, the bar to a life of radical, radical sacrifice for others, radical costliness, radical mission. That's who we are as a community of Jesus followers. Jesus says to all of us this morning, go and do likewise. The band can come up. Let's pray. Yeah, thank you, Lord, for, these, for this story. Thank you, Lord, for everything that is in this story. I thank you, Jesus, that you challenge us that you are calling us to a, a life of radical mission, radical sacrifice. I pray, Lord God, that you are saying there is no limits. I thank you, Lord, that you are calling to think about right now as we worship you. I thank you, Lord, that you are calling us to think about what is it that you are asking from me, Lord? pray, Lord God, that we press into you more and more and become like you more and more through worship and praise and prayer and understanding of the wonder of what you did and who you are. And I pray, Lord God, make that real in our lives. Change us into the people you want us to. Prepare us, Lord, for radical mission. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? Um, we're going to sing a song. And I want you to think about that, because that is challenging stuff, I thought. Think about how that works in your life. And you know what? Don't get guilty. Respond in worship. This is the adventure that we're called to. This is the amazing adventure that we are really called to. So as we, as we worship now, let's praise Jesus and ask him into our lives. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you could become a Christian this morning. You could join the community of believers. After that, you might not want to. It's easy to become a Christian, but you know what? It costs you everything. This is serious, but you know what? God loves you, and he wants you. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, you just need to say, sorry, Lord, for all my unbelief of you, everything I've done, and accept his forgiveness. And you can do that this morning. Someone next to you will pray for you. As we sing this morning, I want, let's respond, shall we? If God's been speaking to you, if God's certainly been speaking to us with a few words this morning, asking us to get prepared. It's the Spirit of God who does that in us. It's the Spirit of God who builds on that relationship that we already have. It's the Spirit of God who moves us on. So as we sing this morning, can I encourage you to come forward because we want to pray for you, lay hands on you, and ask the Holy Spirit to prepare you, as Jean said, prepare you for radical mission. Let the rain fall. And you know what? Most of you should come out this morning, unless you're, unless you're as good as the uh, religious scholar. Challenge.